Welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2017. I am writer hyphen. Hey, you remember when we thought 2016 was as bad as it could get? Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer hyphen, trouble mayor hyphen, nasty woman hyphen, pissy hat hyphen. Do I need to carry on? Yeah, every, everything Donald Trump is afraid of. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. Yes, yes, it's going to be a good one. It's probably uh, it's probably going to be appropriately political. I think we can flag that. Do we have to do a swearing warning? We should do a swearing warning. Yes, I think we do. There will be a lot of swearing, and not just from us. 360-degree 3D <laughs> swearing. That's right. Dolby surround. Which is, and it's interesting that we should, you know, mention uh, mention Trump and mention politics because there is a film that has come out this month that I feel would have made a lot more sense in the era of the Clinton presidency, the Hillary Clinton presidency. But until I can figure out how we can jump between parallel universes to go and live there, we're going to have to watch it in this universe. And this is Jackie, the film about the former first lady, Jackie Kennedy, telling her life story to a biographer. And, uh, and us jumping back to, to the time of, of Camelot, of the, of the JFK presidency, and uh, seeing selective moments of that as she recounts her life. The film is directed by Pablo Lorraine. I feel like it's the modern interpretation of the life story. It, it's filtered through the discussions with the biographer and intercut uh, with not just the White House, but the, her introducing the White House to a television audience, because that was such a big deal when she did that, when Jackie Kennedy did that. And so it's all about not just her life and, and, and the Kennedy's life, but about how the public absorbs it, the, you know, the public persona as the point of reference, and us trying to sort of dig past that to see the personal. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really, really impressed with this film. It is the single most symmetrical film I have ever seen at the cinema. It is beautifully short and composed. The, um, as you said, the editing between the different timelines and the different views that we have of um, Jacqueline Bouvier-Kennedy's story, the, the rhythms, the clarity are fantastic. And I was bored rigid. It is so tasteful. Um, apart from a cranial shot of a post-assassination John F. Kennedy, that I felt like I was being stifled in Chanel or Dior, I can't remember which designer, probably an American designer, or that, like Natalie Portman's top lip, I was being Botoxed into submission. I don't know whether she used Botox, but certainly she talked like she had without moving her top lip. I think it's absolutely a film of the Trump presidency. This is a film about a very powerful political figure who spends two hours telling a journalist what he cannot write. She'll tell him the truth and then tell him it's not the truth, it never happened, it didn't exist, and he has to print the legend. So I was astonished by the film's treatment of the press, its open admission of the manipulation of the press, and also by how orange Bobby Kennedy's hair was. Um, is it Max Beasley playing Bobby Kennedy? Um, is Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. Peter, yeah, Peter Sarsgaard, uh, not Max Beasley, as, as Bobby Kennedy with this incredible orange hair 
there's one scene in the film where, first of all, he gives Jackie a Valium, I think. Then he literally puts his finger on his lips to shush her as she's trying to ask important questions like what caliber bullet her husband was shot with and how the funeral will be arranged. And then when she tries to see her husband's body, he bodily grasps her from behind, picks her up and carries her away. Now, I don't know if this is some kind of cryptic message to Melania, you know, on the lines of, we, you know, we know you're in an abusive relationship, we'll come and help you. But I, I thought this was an extraordinary portrayal. The film is really desperate to make Bobby Kennedy the central character and also weirdly a sort of romantic lead. Um, and he was really a sort of constant orange interference for me, even when I was enjoying the, the creation of, of Jackie and of her interiority. And also that weird little um, crypto-lesbian moment that she has with Greta Gerwig, where, who plays her secretary in the White House, Nancy, and they talk about sort of their college relationship. And I did what feel like that was a nod to, uh, to Hillary Clinton in some obscure way. So I was alternately sort of totally wowed by how beautiful and symmetrical mm. and perfect everything about this film was and desperate for it to be less perfect to tell what was an incredibly politically difficult and challenging story. Mm. There's an attempt to sort of reference that the way we keep getting, and this is very Pablo Lorraine, the, the grain, the intense grain of the 1960s television image crashing into you know, the beautiful cinematography. And, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be sort of, sort of jarring between this idealised version and the sort of grain of the only way we could, we could really experience it back then. Although, of course, all of the 1960s footage is actually contemporary reconstructions. Mm. Um, so the, the grain, the performances are, are reconstructions, apart from, I think, the shooting of Lee Harvey Oswald, which they watch on tv mm. so there is definitely something you know going on there about television the crossover between news and what we could call celebrity or reality tv i also thought it was fascinating thinking about jackie kennedy's tour of the white house as a, an insight into the white house reality television show that is coming our way hmm. very soon and that performativity and also my god the furniture it had more furniture than a henry james novel um <laughs> and her obsession with possessions and interior design which was both sort of fascinating and and, and character defining but in some ways felt like a frustration if this is what we're being told about about powerful women what they're actually worried about is their carpets I, there was something disquieting and also it was a very catholic film which I think might lead us into our next review and the question of the sudden dominance of Catholicism in Hollywood cinema. Yes, Martin Scorsese's uh, passion project, one of his many passion projects, Silence, the, uh, the, the film about the, these priests in the, um, God, I've, I've forgotten which century it is, um, one, of the, one of the classics. Nineteenth, um, nineteenth, one of the big ones. Was it really nineteenth? I thought it was like hundreds of years yeah. before that. Oh, okay, yeah. and yeah, the 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 priests going back to to you know or going to Japan to try and find their mentor who has been lost, you know, presumed dead by some because of the stamping down on Catholicism and Christianity in in Japan. You know, Scorsese's the the, the original film geek director, the guy who's love of cinema is probably as well known as his films. I'm thinking My Voyage to Italy and, you know, amongst 
many of the times we've seen him talk about classic cinema, and this felt like he was really tapping into his love of mid-century Italian cinema and mid-century Japanese cinema. Like, one of the very early shots feels like it's right out of Kurosawa's dreams, which Scorsese himself acted in. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a stunning, stunning film. You know, the meditation on faith and religion, and it should feel outdated watching this in 2017, but he manages to make it feel relevant, and I think it's because he's so in touch with these themes. And it manages to be an argument for faith, an argument against faith, for religion, against religion, for plurality, against fascism. All, and manages to do all these things without ever feeling wishy-washy or conciliatory. Ideas are challenged and the nature of you know belief is explored in a really compelling and, and quite moving way you know i i don't know i was really i was really moved by this film i'm literally going to be excommunicated now <laughs> but actually i'm really glad that you've explained the film to me because i was so confused mm. i thought this was a film about how andy murray spider-man and Darth Hipster had gone to find this guy who'd managed to be in both Star Wars and Batman to ask him about doing franchise crossovers. <laughs> and they'd gone to like this super orientalist fake planet that was like old timey wimey ye inscrutable orientally um, for some exciting torture and cinematography. See, Think everyone thinks I'm the say. one pushing the franchise talk, the big m m Hollywood franchise <laughs> it's stuff. It's all you. My brain the truth over. comes out. It's taken my brain over. Uh, <laughs> 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 and that's, you know, that's more a comment, I think, what I'm saying about the, the dominance of American cinema by the idea that franchises are our new auteur stories. And this is obviously the return of someone who in a sense, invented American independent uh, auteurism or reinvented it for the 1970s. And he is finishing unfinished business, uh, I think, in lots of ways to do with the Vatican reaction to uh, previous mm. works he's made about Christianity. And this definitely feels like a mea culpa and a late work by someone seeking to... to you know, reposition himself within, within the faith, the faith of cinema, as well after doing, you know, a number of much more genre pictures, but also making his piece with the Vatican. And I think I'm going to, in a sense, plead the fifth and say something that um, I heard B. Ruby Rich say, which is, I'm in the wrong body to appreciate this film. Hmm. Just a sticking point for me, I think it's a very strange time to be choosing to make a film about how oppressed Christianity is. I can't see that as a universal story about um, attacks on faith and um, personal belief that come from multiple directions, although I know many other critics have. I felt like it just played into, perhaps not intentionally, special pleading around um, Christianity supposedly being under attack, particularly from the East. It was also a really interesting film to see after recently watching Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia because it felt like it was it was working with those two films but without Lean's sort of urbane, sceptical, Quaker, cool in a sense but definitely aiming to be an epic on that scale about questions of loyalty and belief. So I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to stay neutral on that one because I don't want to be in trouble with Martin Scorsese because he's in London right now and I am quite scared of him. <laughs> That's just the eyebrows. He knows, you know. he knows gangsters. <laughs> I'm sure he does. Um, 
I think, uh, well, I was, I was wondering why this film hadn't taken off in America where, you know, certain elements would love the idea of a film about oppressed uh, uh, Christians. And, and I think one of the reasons it hasn't is that it criticises Catholicism and Christianity as much as it defends it. It's a very complex work that, that, that is about, that it, that it doesn't have a simple answer. It doesn't have a, a good guys and bad guys. It's, you know, there is as much argument for the, these priests shouldn't be, kicked out and beaten and tortured for practicing their faith at the same time as why are you coming to this country and forcing something onto these people? I mean, that's the constant back and forth. And then once you do, what is the correct response? How do you walk that back? And I, I think that's why it hasn't taken off with the Christians are persecuted crowd. And as you say, they're probably still um, pissed at him for Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, complexity of, of any kind is to be welcomed, isn't it? And mm-hmm. certainly both Jackie and Silence um, at least attempt to take the legend and weave some complexity around it. They're both films about questions of faith, and in a way so is our third film, although it's more a, a film about losing one faith and finding another. It's documentary, uh, camera person, the director, Kirsten Johnson, grew up as a Seventh-day Adventist. But uh, this is not a film about Christianity, although it is a film about people's faith being tested in trying circumstances, particularly their faith in humanity. She is um, predominantly known as a camera person working with documentary filmmakers like Michael Moore, Laura Patras, Dawn Porter... And this film is both, it's really difficult to explain, but really simple. It compiles outtakes and material from the films that she's shot, uh, including Fahrenheit 9-11 and Citizen 4, with some of her own home movies. And they're not in chronological order or geographical order. They're a poetic and political reflection on what it means to look at people, often to look at people at very extreme moments of life and death. Um, and ethical judgments, um, and to be that person who's behind the camera, who's not intervening, um, but is telling the story, and it's it's way way better than I'm making it sound. I'm so painfully in love with this film, I can't even talk about it. Look, I look, I'm right there with you. So my favourite type of documentary, for some reason, I've discovered recently, are the ones that are free from narration and cobbled entirely together from archive footage. I don't know why this appeals to me so much, but Soderbergh's And Everything Is Going Fine and, of course, Senna are two of my favourites. And I love that Camera Person followed this path, but the difference is that it takes it to the next level because, uh, you know, Johnson filmed all of the archive footage that she's cutting together. And so it's a memoir, but it's the first one I've ever seen that doesn't point the camera at the subject. It looks through her eyes. It's just so obvious. Now I've seen it done. Uh, but has never occurred to me that a documentary could possibly be done like that. We're taking a literal point of view through her work and family life, and uh, that that was mind-boggling to me. It's just an um, an amazing piece of work. I've seen it, I think, four times now, and I'm seeing it again tonight. Like, I'm not kidding about my crush on this film. <laughs> and every time I watch it, I think, you know, how would you sit down and begin to put this film together? Not just reviewing all the tapes where because she's looking at outtakes you're looking at mistakes you made um some of which she includes in the film like the moment that she was walking backwards filming Jacques Derrida and tripped over in the middle of the road so very revealing (laughs) the moments of 
fear and terror on your own behalf, on behalf of small children playing with axes, on behalf of people fleeing militias. So it's just, it's the most honest piece of filmmaking. It just puts everything on the table, like every question, mm. should I have done this? Were we right to talk to this person like this? Did I frighten Laura when I sneezed really loudly? And also the, about using her own home movies. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last, whatever, 20 or 30 years about, like, what is the responsibility of the documentary maker, particularly if you're, like, a white Westerner making films in the developing world. Like, hey, we created a war in Afghanistan, and now I'm going to go and make my award-winning documentary in Afghanistan. <laughs> See what I did there? And working with filmmakers like Laura Poitras, obviously, is about, like, asking the question of, what, what are we doing here? How can we make a record of this? And to sort of intensify that question, Johnson adds her own home movies, not only of her kids playing, but of her um, late mother who had dementia. And so she just puts it on the line. Like, should I have been filming this person? Does she understand? Or, you know, is mm. our reconciliation happening through the camera? And in fact, the one moment that you see the filmmaker on film is when her mum turns the camera on her. And to me, it's more heartbreaking than any fiction feature that I've seen for ages. But that's some, there's something about that realness, that authenticity that I think Jackie reaches for in using the, the constructed TV footage and also giving it this frame of, of reportage. I think we want authenticity mm. and maybe also as you're saying like Scorsese reaching for that neo-realist look we want a kind of authenticity that is missing in our media and we want a kind of risk and a kind of honesty and you know I fully support the Academy Awards documentary shortlist for the 13th OJ Made in America Fire at Sea What Am I Missing I Am Not Your Negro the Rao Peck film and and life animated I can take or leave it was the strongest year for documentary for so long and I sort of just wish the Academy Awards were just for documentary this year hmm. because there's so many films and they're so important and we need to see them and the brilliant thing about seeing camera person is you get like 25 documentaries for the price of one and I'm sort of slowly working my way through seeing the films that I hadn't seen that uh, that, that that are excerpted hmm. so it's kind of an amazing education in in contemporary documentary as well. In what I think might be a first for Hell is for Hyphenates, we're actually here at the offices of 16 Films with Rebecca O'Brien. Hi, hi. I, hi I'm Rebecca O'Brien, and I don't have a hyphen. I'm a producer, and I work with uh, Ken Loach and Paul Daverty making, um, I guess, what people call social realist films. Or just... Brilliant films, which we're here to talk about today. And I, I tried to count the number of films that you've made together as a team, and I lost count. How many is it? I, I don't, I haven't really counted that much. Um, I mean, the thing is, you see, we've done films which don't quite count as feature films, but they might. And so, something like uh, Tickets, which is a portmanteau film. I, I don't know whether to count that or not, because we did a third of it. Mm -hmm. But actually, I yeah. ended up doing a lot of the producing of it. And here's the coffee. Thanks, Ema. Go on, Alan. <laughs> That's our Irish. Wait, wait, no coffee for me. Um. 
If we could, Lee, we would. That was our Irish representative there. Anyway, number of films. Um, difficult to say. I think it's 16 or 17 or something like that. The other thing is quite difficult because Paul hasn't done quite as many with me and Ken as I have. So I did two with Ken before we started with Paul and then Ken did one with Paul without me and uh, but Paul was in one <laughs> that we did um, but he didn't write it so it's, it's a bit complicated. Anyway, a lot. <laughs> and which is your favourite? You can't have a favourite film. It's like having a favourite child, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, I like them for different reasons. I have soft spots for the for them all and, and each sort of marks a a period in time, a period in one's life, some sort of political moment or whatever. I mean, I loved working on Hidden Agenda, which was the first film that I did with Ken because it was so terrifying. Land and Freedom, the second one we did together, it was so difficult to do and it was such a, a wonderful experience. It's a film about the Spanish Civil War and we sort of, you know, the way we work, you sort of have to do the thing that the film is about. So it was like going to war for um, a few months in Spain in the middle of nowhere but it was a beautiful film and it was an extraordinary experience it was our first co-production and I honestly felt if I never had to make another film in my life I would ha die happy uh, and that was only the second film I did so you know the 15 or so others are all bonuses <laughs> I mean I'm I've loved working in Ireland with Ken I'd loved working in Scotland with Ken so I mean there's The Wind That Shakes the Barley which was a, an, again another really difficult film to pull out the bag you know trying to do a sort of period war film in Ireland on a, a budget of under five million pounds was quite difficult and, and then the Angel Share is a lovely film set in Scotland which is where I come from and we just got to go all over the place so that was that was just great so I mean you know I, I and then Sweet 16 the acting of the kids is so incredible you, you cannot have favorites I Daniel Blake for God's sakes that's a great film, right? <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> what can I say? <laughs> we've just spoken about two Palm d'Or winners in there very quickly. <laughs> yes, uh, winning the Palm d'Or is quite fun too. That's that's. I mean, gosh, I'm a very spoilt producer because I've I've uh, I've been there and some uh, you know had some great moments. It's not that you enter filmmaking to win prizes. You you you, you want to tell stories. That's what we do. But when they get recognised like that with the greatest filmmaker prize um it's it is quite an honor it's pretty fab <laughs> can i ask because uh, you started working with him around or your first film was 1990 with hidden agenda uh, at that point like he was already quite uh, a, a well-known figure you know he was known for social realist uh films uh were, were you a fan how uh, when did you first become aware of his uh of his works i i, I first became aware of Ken's films when I was um, 10, I think, because I watched Kathy Come Home go out on the telly, and I think I was 9 or 10, and um, it, it, it had a profound effect on me. I, I mean, I really was uh, uh, amazed by this thing, which I thought was real. But then later, and then, of course, I saw Cares, which was... My mum and I went to see it, and I, I can remember the cinema and everything, and I, I um, must have been about... 12 or 13 at the time. Um, again, I was absolutely knocked out by it. And, and I think Ken Loach was one of the first names of a director that I knew. And then when I was at, uh, I remember when I was about 17, I, I watched the 
TV series that he did with Jim Allen, who's a great writer, called Days of Hope. And, and that bowled me over as well. So <laughs> by the time I got to... Uh, I mean, I was t- totally in awe of Ken, but by the time I got the opportunity to actually work with him, I'd, I, you know, I couldn't believe my luck. But he'd been... He'd had a bad 1980s. He, he couldn't get arrested. He was trying to make documentaries... BBC weren't interested in him anymore. They kept on sort of... I, I think they, f- they f- thought he was too political. And this is Thatcher's era. And uh, he was finding it very hard to get decent projects off the ground. So when I got the opportunity to work with him, which was a sort of series... There was a sort of series of serendipitous moments. I, I'd been working for Working Title during the uh, 80s, off and on. I, I, I worked as a location manager on My Beautiful Laundrette for them, and um, and they also asked me to produce a TV series for them set in Ireland. It was a big, fat Maeve Binchy beach book called Echoes, and, and, and for some reason they, they thought I might be a good person to, to get the thing made, which I did, which then made me their Irish expert. And as their Irish expert... And they were doing, hoping to do a film with Ken in Ireland. Um, it made sense to to put me together with Ken as the sort of line producer, producer for hire. And uh, so they did. And only thing was, it was a romantic novel by the wonderful writer William Trevor. But Ken was trying to sort of twist it into something more like The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And, and uh, the writers in the end weren't having any of it. And... And about four weeks away from shooting, um, we sort of got sacked. And so Ken and I found ourselves without a job. But we'd had really good fun working together. He'd, he'd thrown my ideas of production out the window. You know, we shoot this way, we shoot in sequence. And I was the queen of the complicated schedule. You know, the, there are these rules that Ken works by. And I thought it was a fascinating process. And I was just totally knocked out that, that Ken was interested in working with me. So... He passed me this script, which was another Jim Allen project, uh, uh, which was Hidden Agenda. And um, it took us two or three years to actually get it funded. We put a pin in the map of Soho and came up with um, Eric Fellner who, to, to get him to help us raise the funds because I, I hadn't done the money side before. But we, we managed to get it made, and that was a triumph. And then it went to Cannes, and... and um, had a very, very controversial launch. Uh, the British press were furious about it because they felt it was that we were taking liberties and it was a, a, a very anti-patriotic film. But it was only telling the truth. So it was an exciting moment. And um, and, and then we had to go back and we, we won a prize. And it, it sort of helped put Ken back on the map after a lean 1980s. So we, we swore we'd work together again. And... and um, I, I, we, we got out of sync for a bit because I had a kid, uh, but then we got back together relatively soon after with Land and Freedom, mm-hmm. and and then we made all the other films after that. <laughs> I, I note that he's credited as writer on very few of his films. And by the way, it's great having such insight, like with someone who, who's worked so closely with him for so long. This is, uh, this is brilliant because I can ask all the things I wonder when I'm, when I'm watching these films. Yeah, uh, he's, he's not often credited as a writer, uh, but they all feel so fundamentally, I don't want to say of a piece, but you can tell there's an auteurism there. There's, you know, the, the same pair of eyes behind the camera. What, what is the process there? Does he have a hand in writing them and leaves his name off, or does he just commission 
things that that uh, play to his his strengths or, or his interests? How, how does that work? No, he doesn't write. I mean, he doesn't. You know, he 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 doesn't write really. I mean, he has had writing credits because he's in uh, some earlier work. He has had a strong hand in shaping it, but he never comes up with the original concept or idea that's always the writer the writer comes up with the story and Ken will work with the writer to help shape it help structure it whenever the writer you know is has come to us with a story Ken has always sent him away and said okay you go write it and then I'll come I'll I'll help you make it into the shape of a film script so Ken does that and uh, Basically, he's a very pragmatic, practical person. And, you know, the, the, the work is just, you know, does this bit, bit work well here? Should we move on a bit faster? It's all very practical stuff. It's not... And, and he would be horrified. He hates being called an auteur because, you know, filmmaking is teamwork completely. And the, and the writer mainly does the writing, as I said earlier, the, and, and the director mainly does the directing and the producer mainly does the producing. And sometimes we cross over a bit and help each other. I, but Ken is, a, is terrific to work with because he's so practical and his attention to detail is phenomenally strong. And so working with him, you, you know, you, you, you have to be absolutely certain that you've, you've covered everything because he'll come up with the one thing, you know, ask you about the one thing you haven't dealt with yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one place you really feel that attention to detail, but also the teamwork, is with the actors. The the num- watching back through all these films, thinking about the number of actors that if Ken Loach didn't discover them, he gave them their first big lead role, like Robert Carlyle in Riff Raff, uh, Martin Compton, as you mentioned in Sweet Sixteen, who's gone on to have an incredible TV career, most recently in in Line of Duty. Isiabo Lyon, who started out as an actor and has now gone on to direct films uh, with Paul Laverty, J- David Bradley in Kez, the, that finding those actors and then working with them, Dave Johns in I, Daniel Blake, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the secret of that. Is it an eye for faces? Is it well, again, conversation? Again, Ken doesn't, doesn't necessarily find all the actors. I mean, the, the actors find themselves in a way, but although we work... We work with a casting director uh, always. Um, Carleen Crawford is the person that we've done films with for the last sort of 15 years. And it's, it's just a very laborious process of finding the right person. We don't always get it 100% right. But finding the right person is exactly the, is the key to it. And what, what they do is they interview um, people in twos and threes, anybody who might be relevant for the part. So we, so we first, first of all, we alight on an area. So let's take I, Daniel Blake. They, Paul and Ken did a bit of research, went to a number of cities around the country. We decided that Newcastle would be a great place to do it. It's a cinematic-looking city. It's, it's something that we, haven't, we hadn't worked there. We, we felt that it had a good, strong community sense to it. Great city. So once we alighted on Newcastle as the main location for I, Daniel Blake, then it was important to... to then we could start casting. Then because we, we need to have... The cast should, should have a Newcastle voice. So we then put out feelers for all possible Newcastle actors who would fit the bill. And that meant spreading the net wider because there aren't that many 
Newcastle actors in their late 50s, early 60s. So then we, we cast the net a bit wider, met and thought comedians might be good. We often do look at comedians because of their wonderful senses of timing and um, maybe football managers, those sort of things. We, we, we'll look at people who might be that character if their lives had been a, just a bit different so that they can they have an easy time sliding into the role. Daniel Blake is is a character that that just you know he's a very ordinary person. He he's he's lived and worked in a job all his life. He's um, and I think Dave is an ordinary chap too. He's although he's a comedian, uh, <laughs> but he's you know he's worked away. Uh, he's he 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 worked as a brickie at some point, so he could identify with the character. So it's about. It's actually casting with type rather than against type. For the role of Katie, uh, the woman that the young woman that he meets, the young mum, we met. We we did casting in London. We wanted a London young woman, and so the the, the net was wider. But again, Carleen and Ken meet like an awful lot of people. There's a lot of meetings over the course of casting a film. They might meet a thousand people, and you know, take notes at the first meeting. The first meeting is a chat with two or three people at once. And then if somebody comes up with, if, if somebody looks interesting and possible, then we'll ask them back. And then if they, then we might ask them back again to do a bit of improvisation. And so we sort of whittle it down. And, and often we, often there are roles that, there are subsidiary roles like friends or a group of people um, and to cast, and, and they might be people who are on the short list for the main part. So often people who are on the short list do end up getting a part anyway. So it's, it's, it's a sort of process of elimination, really. And, and in the end, we have a sort, of, a sort of session we call our finals, where Paul Laverty and me and Ken and Colleen will sit in a room and, and, and the, the, the front runners will do improvisations together. And we'll, they'll, they'll, they'll act out little storylines that, that are, relate to the story that the film will be, but aren't they, aren't, they aren't the script. We don't go near the script, but they, we, we might do an improvisation which is very close to one of the stories in the script. And <laughs> that, that seems like a good preparation for them for, for working practice, because I've read that on a number of films, actors were only given certain parts of the script or there'd only be one actor who had the whole script well no it doesn't quite it's not like that we 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 drip feed the script to the actors so we shoot in sequence and we and we make the production work so that you can shoot in sequence and um i mean sometimes it means going back to certain locations but we hang on to those locations throughout the film so what we do is maybe give them a you know a few pages to start with um and but then if there's a sort of surprise coming up, then we won't give them that bit. And um, but but the, the the assistant directors keep a pile of keep the scripts for the individual actors, and they give them. You know, Ken will will tell them when he thinks it's appropriate for them to have the next bit. Um, so it, it's like then they then they're living their life the life of the character because you don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. I mean, you've got an idea, you know who you are, you know, the character you are in real life, don't you? And you know you've got a few uh, appointments Mm -hmm. coming up. But you don't know what drama is going to play out in your life at all. So that's how it works, and that's how we do it. And um, 
at first, sometimes actors find that they are a bit that, that you know they, they're really desperate to know, and and, and, and they try to to, to nobble the crew. But um, <laughs> but uh, after a week or so, they actually get into the hang of it, and they really enjoy it, and they don't want to know what's happening next. And um, I mean, you know, as you're probably aware, we we're, Ken is the master of surprise. I mean. Steve Everts, for instance, didn't who who plays Little Eric in Looking for Eric, didn't know that Eric Cantona was in the film until he actually meets him on screen, and um, so we had to smuggle Eric Cantona into not only in, into the country and into Manchester and into the street and into the house. The paparazzi knew Steve was completely clueless, and. And then we smuggled him into a room upstairs, sent Steve, who'd been doing a bit, the, being, doing the scene beforehand, and then sent him out for, to have a fag. And then uh, we, we stuck a drape over him, uh, over Eric Cantona, put him in the room. And Eric came, uh, when uh, Steve came back in and, and did his speech again, Eric Cantona answered his question because he's talking to a poster of Eric Cantona and, and he says to the poster, well, what do you think, Eric? And Eric says... Je ne sais quoi. And 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 Steve said it was like it was like a really short acid trip. It's like it's like his whole because we we'd made Steve a huge Eric Cantona fan. So to suddenly find himself in a room acting with Eric Cantona was just sort of you got we got a wonderful reaction. And and then throughout the rest of the film, we kept on having we kept on throwing Eric in at sort of surprise moments, but also. I mean, you get a genuine reaction. Um, that's the, that, you know, the serious thing is you get a genu- genuine reaction. And it doesn't always work, but when it does, it works very well. And I think it's worth having the camera running when somebody does actually get a surprise um, because you do get, a, you know, you get reality and you don't. And because they have lived that character, they become that character for the period that they're doing it. So you, you do get some very powerful performances because you... And even if it doesn't work in the first take, they, 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 they've just done it. And it's just... They've got that, to, that experience, that moment to draw on. So it's, it, it's quite, a, it's quite a, a good technique. That's such a great story. Um, and I love it because, like, those, the films are so rooted in character. I, 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 you know, I really enjoyed watching all of them from the, you know, as, as different as the styles are from the films he was making in the 60s to the ones he, you know, you guys have just been making, you know, a few months ago. You know, they're all so, the characters are all so interesting. And, and you know, the, his films are certainly, you know, at the heart of, of that, you know, that cliche, the, the disparaging uh, phrase, kitchen sink drama. I mean, I, w- I was familiar with that phrase before I'd seen any of these films. Um, and and watching the, watching the films, you realise that that's, they're never as depressing as the stereotype, you know, unless you've only ever watched Disney films your entire life, you know, they're, they're not these dour things, you know, there's so much joy and so much energy and, 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 you know, the characters are so endearing. (laughs) There's so much that, you know, life is full of humor. I mean, you know, the darkest Mm. tales have, you know, there's always, there's always a laugh at a funeral, you know, and it's, uh, there should be, I think it's part of human nature to, to try and cope with things, you you make fun, and um, so you know that, that's one of the reasons I, I'm very fond of looking for Eric as well because it's got a lot of good gags in it. Um, it was also a bunch of comedians making that film, all trying to outdo each other on the way as well. The the <laughs> sort of gag fest, it was it was great fun. I was really struck by how much song and dance 
there is in the films. I ones you expect, like Jimmy's Hall, which is set in a dance hall. But then I completely forgotten how much music there is in Carla's song, which, given the title, you'd think I would have paid more attention. But all through the films, there's this people gathering together, whether it's at football matches around that kind of community event or in bars like the bar in Bread and Roses, um, the Mexican band play at. There's so much joy and these big crowd scenes where you are paying attention to the characters but also you're getting this really strong sense of place and community yeah are those the most complicated bits to to put together are they the most fun ah they're a bit of both i mean i think the community scenes are are extraordinary i mean they they tend to to, i mean a big dance sequence does need a lot of rehearsal with jimmy's hall for instance we had to actually not only build a hall on a bog in somewhere deep in Ireland. I should um, say the sign for the hall is behind right us. behind us in the office here for the Pierce Connolly <laughs> Hall. We should get Emma up to read the name of it for yes. us. Um, but uh, so not only did we have to build a hall, but we also had to build a community um, who felt like they were at home at the hall. And, and also we had to build a couple of bands to play in the hall. Mm. So that that's quite a lot of work. That's a lot of production work. That's a lot of casting. It's a lot of it's a lot of rehearsal because even though you don't want people to to, to look like professional dancers, they still know how to. They need to know how to do the dances. So we had choreo- choreographers and we had um, you know dance classes going on. And I was so envious. I really wanted to be part of it. So all those things need organising. And um, uh, so it is complicated, and that that is what happens. That's part of production. That's what's behind the scenes, and all of those those things. Like, um, I mean, there's a dance in the wind that shakes the barley. Um, again, you put together the community, and I mean, one of the wonderful things about watching Ken work is when he has got a community to play with. When he has got seventy people in the room, that he's Make, turning those people, the costumed people, into into these wonderful dancers or, or or party people or whatever it is, and it's it's always a it's always a great moment, and um, it's it's just it, it's a practical problem though how you film people in on mass in a room, and I mean I think the best example of it is the. Uh, land reform debate in Land and Freedom, which is a an eleven minute sequence, which you would think, God, how dry that sounds! But it's one of, to my mind, one of the most exciting electric moments in cinema, where you have thirty or forty people discussing. Uh, you've got the the militia, um, you've got the local people, the the peasants, they've got. Uh, all the different strata of the local community from the village and and these incoming militia and they just sit down and they discuss they they fight out the the way that the um, the community should go forward in 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 this in the war and we 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 sat around this table um, in this very ancient room in in this this ancient village in Spain and and it was full of smoke and um, we had just we set two cameras running on this scene and we ran the cameras for, I mean, we, we, we shot it over a day and a half just debating and people were crying and laughing. It's just a most extraordinary experience to be there. You could, you know, you felt this is a moment of, of cinema being there and um, people got, 
terribly passionate. And that's just exciting. That's just such a thrill. Um, but it's a complicated thing to organise. And it just you feel, you feel a real sort of sense of catharsis when you pull something like that off. And that is one of the wonderful things about being a producer. There are moments of catharsis. And um, there aren't that many other jobs that you get to do have that. <laughs> that scene is amazing. <laughs> it, it is. It is incredible. And it reminded me a lot of the documentaries he made, sort of the 60s and um, probably more the 70s, um, where he, you know, inside the room where uh, the unions are debating uh, tactics and all, all the various issues involved in, in the strike actions. And these sequences go on forever and they're real and they're so fascinating. That's questions of leadership, which which got banned, which got censored. I mean, Ken, in a very British way, but it, it is, it's four, it was originally f- four hours of union debate um, and it, it's really fascinating stuff. And I think that's how he learnt. I mean, it was, I think, in filming those scenes, that's how he learnt how to direct a group on film and a group discussion on film. And I think, you know, that's... I think you're right. That's exactly what that scene in Land and Freedom is the culmination of. We did it again in The Wind That Shakes the Bali. There's a scene towards the end of Bali where the different sides get together and debate which way you know what they should do and and, and whether they should follow you, you know the, the 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 more sort of communist route or whether they should give more concessions and and be more uh i don't know negotiate more and or be hardline and it's really fascinating it's a it's a, a fantastic device i have to say i, I i'm i'm all for it i'm really glad you said the word communist because i feel it would be Lacks of us not to talk about politics as part of this, that Ken is a socialist. I don't know what his specific designation within the, that is. <laughs> I'm sure it's been much debated and, and changing and that that's a, that's a very rare thing in British cinema, in global cinema. You know, someone gets a chance to go to LA to make a film and they say, great, I'm going to make it about ununion, non-union cleaners who are working in a building where Hollywood lawyers are. It's just the most brilliant strike uh, against Hollywood. But also you say he's, he was censored by the BBC, hidden agenda was very controversial. I feel like there are some tips and tricks that we could... Actually, it was Channel 4 he was censored by, Channel I 4, to say, not BBC. Right? Um, Sorry. To leadership, but yes. He was censored by Channel 4. Uh, hidden agenda, very controversial. Obviously, I, Daniel Blake, um, has caused some political ructions. What, what, what can we learn from Ken about dealing with the, you know, the new world order? What should new younger filmmakers be be learning from his films and from the production process you've gone through, like how not to get arrested, things like that. Um, Ken quotes quotes Brecht on this subject. He says. If if you ter- if you if you show the world as it is, that's all you need to do, and it. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but it, it's it's that's the thing. If you actually look at the world and you you can find a way of showing how it wor- works, then then and, and you find a good story to, to 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 weave that around, then you as a filmmaker you've said it. It's it's like you you've wound it up and then you get it let it go and that's and if you succeed as we we have in a way with i daniel blake in that it has caught a nerve people have 
said, well, yes, that's true. That does. That is what happens. I'm outraged that that happens. I'm. Um, I'm going to tell my politician or my MP that this is what happens, and this isn't a lie. And so you get people using it as a banner, and that's all we can do as filmmakers is say how it is. And I think that's what that's what Ken would say as well. And I think that that's an, a, a really good way of being political in a film. You know, we're not banging a drum. And I think if we if we do bang a drum, if we say something overtly political. It tends to fail. People say, "Oh well, you're just you're just mouthing off," and I know there's a couple of places where that's happened in our films where we've been too overt by making a character say something, you know, a specific political comment. You'll find that they tend not to in the films. You look at Sweet Sixteen. You look at the story of um, Liam and Pinball and the sister, and the fact that these are kids who are having to bring themselves up in a very difficult, poor world, and nobody's looking out for them. And so they make their own world. And you just show people, this is a story, this happens. And so you want people to sit up and say, well, that shouldn't be happening. We need to do something collectively about it. And so, you know, I think it's different from being a politician, but it is political and life is political. And I think... What I'm proud of is that films do not shy away from their politics. And what Ken loves to do more than anything is go along and discuss and argue about his films after screenings. And, um, I mean, he's been having a great time and done lots of um, Q&As after screenings of I, Daniel Blake. And, and it just gets people energised. And if you look at our social media, the social media response to the film has been phenomenal. And, and communities are getting involved and and the, the, the um, E1 Entertainment One, the distributors here in the UK, have made the film available for community screenings at like a, a, a sort of cut rate, because um, so that people so in in between this bit between um, the cinematic release and it coming out on DVD in February, um, they've allowed community groups to rent the film for for like. Uh, 80 quid or something like that, which then means that they can use it as a fundraiser, they can show it in a community hall, they can show it to people who normally would not go to the cinema. And we've had like over 400 community screenings booked. And Ken's been going along, Paul's been going along, I've been going along, I'm going to Cambridge tomorrow. It's like getting the film out, getting the word spread has been a, a, a fantastic thing. It's also, it's been, it's been brought up in Parliament like six times um, Mainly by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Mary Black, who is the young SNP uh, member for part, a bit of Glasgow, she used the speech at the end of the film as a call to arms, really, uh, to, for people to notice what's going on. She did a fantastic speech using the speech. Damien Green, who's the uh, the Minister for Work and Pensions, said... I've seen lots of trailers. I don't need to, to, to see the film I, Daniel Blake, to know how outrageously unfair it is on job centre workers. It sort of slammed on. It was great. So that gave Jeremy Corbyn a great moment to, to, to invite uh, him and Theresa May at uh, Question Time to uh, come and see this magnificent film or whatever that portrays exactly what is going on in the British welfare system. Man, I would love to be a fly on the wall at that screening. 
<laughs> well, it, it brings us uh, it brings us nicely back to you know you mentioned watching Kathy come home at, 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 as a young girl and and you know I knew that by reputation before I'd even seen the film because there is an argument that that's you know one of the most influential films ever made because it actually changed the policy, didn't it? Well, it didn't actually. Um, there were a couple of um, charities that that were launched after it and were sort of semi-spawned by it. I, I mean, and the, 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 the tragedy of it is 50 years later, it, it actually, 50 years later, it had its um, anniversary, like a couple of weeks after I, Daniel Blake opened. So they, they're, they're magnificent bookends, I think, of Ken's career. But the thing is, Kathy certainly brought the homeless situation to the public's mind, put it on the agenda but the tragedy is that homelessness is just as bad now as it was then. It's taken different shape now. But there are a lot of homeless and there are people, and it's not just people on the streets. There's the, the people like like Katie in, the, in I, Daniel Blake is, is in, living in a hostel because for one reason or another she, she can't get a flat and that's how she's been moved up to Newcastle. So sadly, I'm not sure that... Uh, we can be that effective and and that's that's what's a real shame is that, that you can't really claim to have had a, a great effect but i think i think just getting people thinking and getting people in the honest truthful direction is is great having that influence is wonderful and i i, I think it's all we can do i don't it would be arrogant to, to assume that you can you have the power to change things but if you can get people talking you know, I think so far the best thing that's happened about I, Daniel Blake is that people are donating sanitary women's sanitary products to food banks. Well, food banks should not exist, and that's the that's the that's the thing that makes me angry. The food banks didn't exist six years ago, I think, or five years ago. Twenty five thousand food bank bags were ha- were handed out last year. It was 1.1 million food bank bags were handed out. 400,000 of those were were, get, were for children. So there's a there's, it's like it's getting worse. This is the fifth richest country in the world, and we have these problems. I had one. I had one more question. It's on a completely different note, but it's about the word fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Joe. 230 occurrences. I haven't checked that stat against Quentin Tarantino films, but I reckon that Ken and, <laughs> Ken and Paul might be up there. Oh, I, do, I, 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 I would be very proud if we are. I mean, these are, this, the, we were absolutely livid because Sweet 16 was made an 18 certificate because of the language. But this is the language that these people speak. You know, in Scotland, uh, in working class parts of Scotland, they'd be horrified to realise this, but it's used like punctuation. It, 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 it has a different meaning. It's like it's gone into the language and there it is. But the thing about Sweet 16, which is was really funny, was that um, it wasn't the fucks that, that, that made them uh, so vehement to make it an 18 certificate. It was the cunts and it was... I ended up having this ridiculous conversation with the British Board of Film Classification discussing the nature of the cunts and, and whether they were violent <laughs> they were violent uses of the words, if they were violence against, if they incited violence against women. And, I mean, you know, somebody saying, oh, he's a friendly wee cunt from up in Glasgow, you know, <laughs> that, that is not. It's like that is, that is an endearment. 
you know. And so, I mean, this was the problem again on the Angel Share. We thought we really were doing well. And then we had this sort of battle over 15 cunts in the film. And uh, uh, I think seven of them had to be excised because they were considered too violent. And, and, and I think eight were allowed to stay because they were they were within the realms of bearability so you know you're going it, it becomes absurd but the, the fact that language which is which doesn't hurt people should actually be considered uh, such a violent dangerous thing when you have films that are 12 12a certificates where there's guns all over the place, there's death, there's mayhem, there's... Really? We are inciting violence with our use of language? Well, maybe we've succeeded somewhere there. But also, the other thing to say is that, that people don't like to think that they are potty-mouthed. They don't like to think that, that, that they, they're giving a good example to, to the young of the world by demonstrating that they, they speak so, so uh, poorly. <laughs> but I love... I mean... Um, you know the the cunt wars on uh, on the angel share were just hilarious, and um, I, I had, I've got this wonderful correspondence with the BBFC. It's very funny. I'm proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly don't think we're going to top uh, the phrase "cunt wars." Um, oh, I, think I think that's going to be the highlight. <laughs> <laughs> it's a video game we would all love to see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, brilliant. I mean, we, there's another, you know, 50 years of stories <laughs> that we'll have to maybe come back and do a do a part two or just set a 16 film <laughs> up to do a, do a regular podcast. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. It's been very an entertaining Friday morning's chat. Green's the colour of the sparkling corn in the morning When we rise in the morning when we rise, that's the time, that's the time I love the best. Mellow is the feeling that I get when I see her. Mm-hmm. When I see her. Uh-huh, that's the time, that's the time I love the best. Freedom is a word I rarely use without thinking. Mm-hmm, without thinking. Uh-huh, of the time, of the time when I was loved. That was very good. Yeah? Yeah. Getting better, aren't I? You are. Ah. <laughs>